Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You may have heard the name John Mashita before. I remember as a kid, he was the micro-machine guy. He was the guy on the commercials that talked really fast and, and advertised those little uh, little cars uh, that, uh, that were so popular back in the day. But he is one of the most famous voices in the world, and even if you don't remember him from the micro-machine commercials, uh, you probably, probably have heard him in commercials before. At one point, he held the record for being the fastest talker in the world. He was clocked as being able to, to articulate 586 words a minute. Uh, I listened to the guy who replaced him, and he's British, and though he says they say he can articulate over 700 words, the British accent makes it hard to understand. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the American on here because and, uh, and, and, I can understand what he's saying most of the time. I want to show you this morning the commercial where he got his, his break. This is from 1981. Okay, Eunice Travel Plans, I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday, got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here, what really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think on my feet I'm going to figures and have a sharp mind. Excellent, can you start on Monday? Yes, sir, absolutely, without hesitation. Congratulations, welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, call Fred, load, dork, eight up and ten. Business is business, and as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, we got to get to work, so let's get to work. Thank you for taking the meeting. PD did a bang-up job on putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter, that's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect, Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. There's a Mr. Schnittler here to see you. I'll have to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just dealt with Don. In this fast-moving, high-pressure, get-it-done-yesterday world, aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? You got a deal. Good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Doc, and Dick. Doc, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Doc with Dick, Dave, and Doug. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dan. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. Today's service is not brought to you by FedEx, by the way. What I did find funny in, in looking for that video is that uh, is my kid was like, what's Federal Express? Um, some of you are looking at the technology in that video and thinking, that phone's connected to something. What in the world is, uh, is, is going on there? Uh, now, some of you may actually feel like you live with somebody who talks that fast. Uh, I, I may or may not feel that way after I come home from work and, uh, and begin to get assaulted with, uh, with, with 586 words a minute uh, from, from folks. But uh, contrary to what you may believe, I wasn't looking at you. I was looking up there. <laughs> contrary to what you may believe, that's just a perception and not a reality. Last week, we started talking about um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. As we move from chapter 5, Jesus has explored for us here what it means to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And in these particular verses we talked about last week, he, he looked at very public displays of devotion. Uh, prayers aren't to be offered to impress others. Generosity should have no strings attached to it, no, no public recognition. And fasting isn't so that others will be mesmerized at just how spiritual we are. However, as we get into the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive deep into this, how the Sermon on the Mount handles prayer. 
Again, we scratched the surface last week of this very important teaching, but we're going to dive deep, and, and in, this, in, this dive, in this deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount's teaching on prayer, we're going to get into the Lord's Prayer and, and the model prayer that Jesus gives us. Last week, as we scratched that surface, we, we talked about the fact that prayers need to be pointed in the right direction. Again, prayers aren't offered publicly for those listening. Prayers ought to be pointed in the direction of God. Back in verses 5 and 6, Jesus warned about the nature of public prayer. We aren't praying so that others will be impressed by our words and by our, uh, the, the language that we use. Now, again, Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer, but he is challenging us to make sure that when we pray that God is our audience not those around us. Now, up until this point, most of Jesus' teaching has dealt with how kingdom citizens, that's us, how, how our devotion should look different than the devotion of the, the scribes and Pharisees, the, the hypocrites, as Jesus affectionately calls them here in the Sermon on the Mount. But in our verses today, the focus shifts. And now Jesus wants to teach us how our devotion should be different from that of the non-believers around us. And though non-believers certainly look different today than they did in Jesus' day, I think principally Jesus' counsel about how to pray has just as much to do with us today as it did with his first audience there on the mountainside. You know, in spite of the fact that we live in a world that's increasing in its secular nature, we do recognize that there is a, there is a certain spirituality that still exists even in our very secular world. For example, when there's some sort of national tragedy that happens, the, 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 the politicians and the celebrities and the popular people in the world, they're quick to come to a camera. They're quick to come to a microphone and, and declare our thoughts and, and prayers are with those who were affected. In spite of the fact that those individuals many times have no uh, no spiritual affection whatsoever, yet they still manage to find the, the means to share their thoughts and prayers for those who've been affected by whatever tragedy it is that it has taken place. As Christians, it ought to look different. As citizens of the kingdom, there should be a difference in how we pray than how the world around us goes about praying. So what we find here is that, is that Jesus is not wanting us to compare our prayer life to others, Instead, he wants us to check our heart against the standards that he has set for us in this kingdom manifesto that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, we'll turn our attention to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. I would invite you to please stand with me as we read God's word together from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. For do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. God, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the clear teaching that you give us. May we pray in a way that points people to you and, and inclines our own hearts towards yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. As we dive into this text, the, the first thing that we find that Jesus teaching us here is that when we pray, we need to be mindful of our empty words and empty phrases. Notice it's when you pray, 
Not if you pray. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a negotiable idea. When you pray, not if you pray. Be mindful of your empty words and phrases. The word Jesus uses here, this word for, for empty phrases, it's used only here in the Bible, and as far as we can tell, it's only used here in all of Greek literature. It doesn't appear anywhere else. And it's believed to be a, a, an onomatopoeia. Some of you say, say what? You remember back from grammar, an onomatopoeia is a word that, that, that sounds like what it's describing. So a word like, like crash, that, that's an onomatopoeia. It describes, it sounds like what it's describing, or the word whisper sounds like what it's describing. And, and here the word Jesus is using is, is the word for, for babbling, for babbling. Now, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear Jesus' words here in verse, in verse 7 is the encounter that Elijah had with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. If you remember the story, uh, Elijah was a prophet of God. He was pleading with the people to turn from the idols and turn to the Lord. One of those idols that was particularly compelling was the, was the idol known as Baal. And so Elijah called for a demonstration. And he asked the pagan prophets to join him on Mount Carmel. And there they prepared two altars. And they placed a bull on each altar. And the, the idea was is that whichever deity consumed the bull is clearly the deity who was the true and living God. And so Elijah, being a, a courteous man, let the pagans go first. And there in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26, we see what happened. It says, They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for, for he's a god. Either he's musing or maybe relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, we don't have very many descriptive words describing what they said. We have cries, hear us, we hear those sort of things, but, but it appears that a majority of the day was spent doing what is described here as simply raving on and on as is stated there in verse 29. Again, that, that picture of, of, of no coherency, of, of no sincere thought, of just raving on, uttering phrases, hoping to hit the magic word, the, the word that triggers God's response in, in an attempt to gain his favor. The point that Jesus is making here, though, is that prayer needs to have a heart connection, not just the mindless repetition of phrases. Now, Jesus could give us a list. There are days that I wish Jesus would give us a list, right? Do this, don't do this. If you'll do this, everything's good. If you don't do this, everything will be fine. That would be great, but Jesus doesn't give us a list here. And so what we have to do is we have to take the principle that he gives us and figure out how it applies. For example, I'm about to make some of you mad, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize up front that, that this is going to irritate some folks, and, and again, accept my my sincerest apologies, but just hold, hold on. 
Some, a lot of people, I won't say some, a lot of people love the old gospel song. Have a little talk with Jesus. It's in your head now. It's, it's an earworm. It's going. Okay? I won't lie. I've tapped my toe along to that song as I've heard gospel quartets sing that song and, uh, in, in concert-type settings. But there's a line in that song that we sing along with, but if we ever stop to pay attention to, the line says something like this. Now, when you feel a little prayer wheel turning and you know a little fire is burning, have you ever stopped and said, what in the world's a prayer wheel? We sing it, quartets sing it. It's been sung in churches all over our area. Matter of fact, the writer of the song is a Chattanooga native. What's a prayer wheel? A prayer wheel is a cylindrical structure that in that cylindrical structure, you place written prayers. And the person who is using the prayer wheel turns it. And as the prayer wheel turns, the prayers that are inside are being tossed about, and in their being tossed about, it is offered up to God in the form of prayer. You say, preacher, I ain't never read that in the Bible. You're exactly right. You've never read that in the Bible because it didn't come from the Bible. It comes from Tibetan Buddhism. Now, we don't know why the writer of that song put it in there, but it's in there, and Baptists have been tapping, toe-tapping along ever since. So that song, I've, I, now that it's in your ears, we've got to try to remove it because it's, it's, got, it's, it's got some flaws there that, that we have allowed. I even I laughed, I looked it up, and the, the United Methodist Church has got a really helpful website where they explain hymns and, and things like that. And, and um, I will say that sometimes that denomination is a little, a little leftward-leaning. And, uh, and so in their description of the hymn, they actually get into this and say, we know that it includes something about Buddhism, but you choose whether you want to sing it or not. They don't just come out and say, you know, that's, that's not biblical. They just say, go ahead and make your decision on what you think about it. Uh, another Buddhist tradition that started to find its way into our lives are prayer flags. Now, uh, I could make political jokes and things about flags right now and things, but I won't. Um, you may have seen these things in movies, documentaries and things. If you've seen anything from Tibet, Nepal, those kind of places, like all the documentaries about Mount Everest, you see these things kind of flying. These are, these are colorful cloths that are hung up on twine and stretched across roads and trails and around temples and things like that. And on these cloth squares, prayers are written. And again, the idea is that as the wind blows, it blows the blessing of these prayers around the community in which they're, they're strung. Now, if you were to go to places like uh, World Market or, or those kind of places, and you might be shopping for decorations from your home, and you might say, look at those pretty cloths that, are, that they're selling and making available to us. Well, those are Tibetan prayer cloths. Uh, as a matter of fact, the United Church of Christ, another left-leaning denomination, has got... Uh, has got help on their website to help you make your own Tibetan prayer cloths that you can hang up in your home and, and scatter the blessings of prayer around your, around your home. Now, what's wrong with this? It gets into this mindless repetition of, of, that has no heart connection. It's a, it's, a, it's a random sort of thing. It's one thing if you take a written prayer out and consider its words and offer it to God. It's another thing if you just roll the dice and hopefully that you land on a good prayer that'll go up for you. It's, it's mindless repetition. Um, in many traditions, uh, particularly Roman Catholic tradition, the rosary is another idea that, that comes a lot closer. We've seen this a lot closer to home. 
And the rosary, if you've ever seen this, the way it's designed is the beads are particularly designed to help a, a Catholic person count their prayers so that they get the count right. Uh, again, if you're worried about counting your prayers, you're, you're probably worried about the wrong thing. Making sure that you say it the right number of times and that you get it right, you're, you're probably worried about the wrong thing. If you're concerned about how many Hail Marys, now in a Baptist church we're thinking that's a football play. <laughs> in the Catholic church it's part, of their, it's part of their prayer life. And so again, if you're trying to keep count, then you're probably missing the point of Jesus' words. Again, some of you are probably saying, Pastor, I don't own a prayer wheel, I've never seen a prayer flag, and I've never touched a rosary. I'm okay, right? If those are the only three things we have to worry about, I'm good, right? Well, you know me better than that. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. So this is where we get back to the heart of Jesus' teaching. What's the heart of Jesus' teaching? That we as, as, as kingdom citizens, we ought to avoid empty phrases and mindless repetition. As Christians, we are not immune from this. Consider even how we teach our children to give thanks. How many times have we heard something like this? God our Father, God our Father, we thank you, we thank you for our many blessings, for our many blessings. Amen. Right? How many times has that been uttered over and over and over again? You say, that's how I taught my kids how to give thanks. I'm not suggesting that it's not good to teach habits of giving thanks, but if, that's the, if that is the way that we've te taught our children to continually express thanksgiving then what we've equipped our kids with is what? A mindless song. A mindless repetition of phrases with no heart engagement. And parents are, 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 some of you I can see it in your face, like, oh no, what have we done? It's not too late, don't worry, it's not too late, and how do you, how do you put the worms back in that can? Well, it's real simple. Uh, again, there's nothing wrong with memorization. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it's connected to heart. And so if, you're, if your family is one where your kids lead in that beautiful song before meals, then ask the child before they sing to think and give one thing for which they're thankful each and every time that they go to the Lord and pray, each and every time they give thanks. And so if they are to sing the song, then say, say you know, little Johnny, what's, what's one thing that you're grateful for today? What's one thing that you're thankful for today? And ask the child to say, I'm thankful for, for the roof over my head. And then proceed to lead the song. And there's then a heart connection because the child has to think about the things for which they're grateful. And then follow that with a type of, of memorized prayer. That way their minds are at least engaged beyond simple recitation. Again, we could spend a long time considering various examples of prayer that fall into this category. I really appreciate the summary that Pastor John Stott provides. He said this, he says, what Jesus, forbids is his what Jesus forbids his people is any kind of prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. Any kind of prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. Secondly, when you pray... You need to be mindful of your loquacity. That's a good word right there. What does that word mean? That means you got a lot of words. You got a lot of words. Now again, you may know people with a lot of words. Husbands look at your wives and you say, she got a lot of words. That's just how we're wired differently. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
Another error here, though, is, is, is the thinking that, that God will be swayed if we simply inundate him with words. That, that if, we can just, if we can just blow his ears up with as many words as we can muster, that maybe he'll get so tired of hearing us talk to him that he'll, he'll give us what we're, we're looking for. It's like if we go sit on Santa's lap and we tell Santa all the things that we want and we won't stop talking until he says, fine, you get it all, leave me alone. That's not how this works. But perhaps more than a warning against our, our verbosity, this is a warning about how we think about God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I hope we are very uncomfortable with the idea that God is somehow persuaded by our many words. Imagine the following scenario. One man is a contractor. His business thrives when there is no rain. His business thrives when the sun is shining day in and day out. Another man is a farmer. His business thrives when rain is consistent, providing water to his crops. Both men pray for favorable weather so that their business can thrive. The contractor prays that there will be days with lots of sunshine and no rain. The farmer prays that there will be days of rain mixed with sunshine. Both farmers love Jesus, both farmers are, or both men love Christ, both men are praying fervently, but one prayer is for no rain and the other prayer is for ample rain. Are we comfortable with a God who is persuaded by the man who simply says more words? Are we comfortable with a God who says, you know, he prayed a better prayer than he did, so I will grant his request and not his. I'm not comfortable with, with that God. I'm not comfortable with a God who is, who is swayed by my words, but not by your words. If we think that, then we've, we've mistook how God operates in this. I don't believe that we like that outcome at all. But there's a lot of people who function exactly that way. We almost treat prayer like it's a filibuster in the Senate. This is a political season, so we can talk about that. A, a filibuster is when a senator or a side takes one side of the debate hostage by making lengthy arguments and procedural motions that delay and, and block a vote. I mean, some of these guys have done filibusters. I read that the longest filibuster was something like 24 hours where they actually held hostage negotiations of a vote for, for a, full, a full calendar day. We, we think that if we just say enough, or if we just say the, the right combination of words that God will grant me my request. And, and that's where we miss the point. That's where we miss the point. God is not a cosmic Santa that is looking to grant our request if we'll just say the right combination of words. John Calvin said in his commentary on this passage, he said, Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, that they may declare that from him alone they have hope and expect both for themselves and for others all good 
things. You see, the point here is that when you pray, you need to understand that you're talking with one who has perfect knowledge of all truth. When we go before a holy God, we're going before one who, who knows everything. We need to keep that in mind. When, remember who we're talking to. He knows our needs. There is not a need that you've brought before God that God has said, I had no idea. Had no idea you were hungry. Had no idea you were cold. Had no idea that you had this longing. Had no idea that you had this desire. Had no idea that you had this sin. We never go to God and catch Him off guard with our, our needs. We never go to God and, and surprise Him. And we need to remember that He is a God who has perfect knowledge of all truth, but He's a loving Father who cares deeply for you. And we aren't communicating with Him because we're hoping to change his mind. I'll be honest. If I could change God's mind to conform to my will, in my way, in my mind, I don't know about you, but that feels like I'm asking for disaster. Because God knows things way better than I do. In fact, when we go to God in prayer, we have this precious communion with a God who's already declared that he has our good in mind. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. He cares for you. When you bring your needs before a holy God, you're not bringing them to an opponent who's opposed to you. You're not bringing them to somebody who is out to get you. You're not praying like the Greeks did, hoping that Zeus will, will show favor on you and throw lightning bolts at your enemies. That's not who you're praying to. As a matter of fact, when we pray, we pray to a God who cares for us. And even when we pray about our enemies, we need to understand that God also cares for them. Which is why exactly that Jesus tells us here that you ought to pray for those who persecute you because the truth of the matter is, is that God cares about those people who persecute you. Just like he cares for you. Now, raises some really important questions about prayer. Questions that we need an answer to. If this is the case, if, if, if prayer doesn't if prayer doesn't change God's cosmic mind, why pray at all? Many Christians have asked that question over the years. I want to give you two very important answers to that question. First, we pray because we don't have it all together. We pray because we don't have it all together. We don't, we don't wake up in the morning and say, man, I... I I've got my life exactly like it needs to be today. Everything is cruising along perfectly. Because if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, man, everything is, is, is top-notch, well, you're probably not looking at it through the right lens. What's interesting about Christian maturity is, is that the more someone matures in Christ, and again, logic would say that as you mature in Christ, you're sinning less, 
and, and you're, you're walking closer with God because you don't have as many obstacles, uh, obstacles between you and Him. So as you mature, one would think, well, I, I do have it a little more together now than I did when I first got saved. But what's interesting about Christian maturity is that as you mature, you don't pray less. You actually find that you're praying more. Because as you mature, you become increasingly aware of your own condition, increasingly aware of, of your heart's condition. You become increasingly aware of, 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 of how much God has saved you from. And as a consequence of that realization, how can you not talk to Him more? How can you not go to Him more frequently? How can you not express that love, that adoration, that thankfulness more often? The closer we grow to Christ, the more we seek Him, in our prayers because we want that communion with him i think if you've walked with the lord for any length of time you know what those seasons were like where it didn't feel like your prayers got past the ceiling you know what it was like when you didn't feel like he was listening you know what it was like when when the answer to the prayer was always no no not yet not now but as you grow you begin to embrace that answer. Not yet, not now, no. We pray because we don't have it all together. And secondly, we pray because of Jesus' example. Goodness gracious, if, if you want to have your life going in the right direction, pattern your life after the, the pattern of Jesus. The devotional pattern of Jesus, and Jesus demonstrated on countless occasions a need to pray. Jesus demonstrated for us a, a time. He needed to get away and have those all-night prayer vigils. He needed to have a season where, where he connected with the Father. Now, now, understand this. Jesus had it together. He was perfect. In, in his temptations, he was, he was able to overcome. He was, he was the Son of God in flesh, and so Jesus had it all together. But if Jesus is our example, my goodness, he knew how to pray. He had those all-night prayer vigils. He, he led in prayer in public. He even offered intercessory prayers. In John's Gospel, a passage in the chapter, chapter 12 known as the High Priestly Prayer, Jesus offers intercession not only for his disciples, he intercedes for you and for me. So Jesus is his perfect example and we understand that Jesus benefited from the communion that he had with the Father through prayer. If Jesus needed to connect with the Father through prayer in his perfection, my goodness, you and I in our imperfections should need it even more. And so Jesus is our perfect example. So if for no other reason we pray because we're messed up and we pray because Jesus isn't. Secondly, another question, and I think this one has some merit for us, should prayers never be memorized or standardized? Again, we talk about how we teach children to pray. The issue is not memorization. We should understand that. The issue is not memorization. Otherwise, we would never memorize Scripture. And so we understand there is merit in memorization. The problem is that when we recite what we've memorized without ever engaging our hearts and minds, if, if our memorization of prayers is simply so that we can get it off the tongue faster and move on to the next thing, then, then we've really missed the point. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is a, is a great example of this. The Lord's Prayer, we could stand and recite this together. 
I don't think we do that enough in, in our Protestant churches. We don't recite the Lord's Prayer together enough. But the Lord's Prayer can be taken, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We could do it that way. But when we pray that way, there's no heart connection to the words that we've prayed. There, there's, no, there's no thought, there's no consideration given to the words that we've expressed. But when you stop and you, you read the Lord's Prayer and you understand what you're saying, our Father in heaven, there is a, a familial identity there. We're not looking at God as some far-off cosmic deity that we have no connection with, but Jesus in the model here says He is our Father. He, is, he has that family connection, that personal connection. And, and we have His location, our Father in, in heaven. He is in a place of perfection, a place of holiness, a place that He is preparing for us. Hallowed be your name. Your name is sacred. Your name is renowned. Your name is holy. There is no name like it. When you hallow someone's name, you are declaring their name to be greater than any other name. So the Lord's Prayer is more than just rote memorization. It contains depth that if you will take time to probe the depth and mean the prayer when you pray it, it will change your life. So the issue is not memorization. The issue is the heart connection. So don't read Jesus' words here say that uh, I should never memorize Scripture. I should mem never memorize prayers because I don't want to be guilty of, of reciting, reciting empty phrases. Well, only you control whether the phrases are empty or not. A third question, again, one that we struggle with, should prayers be brief? Jesus said, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't heap up lots of words. So does that mean that prayer should be brief? If so, that, that uncle at Thanksgiving dinner who, uh, who proceeds to bless the meal until the meal is cold, uh, you know, do you, got, you have some ammo to use there? Hey, uh, preacher at church said to let this thing, speed this thing up a little bit. If you're worried about the clock, you've missed the point. If you're worried about the time, you've missed the point. The point is not our brevity, but our attitude with which we pray. The fact of the matter is the Apostle Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. You read that and you think, does that mean that I'm supposed to just constantly be walking through life, talking to myself, you know, verbalizing prayers as I constantly go through life? No, because prayer is communication and it's two-way. And prayer can be as simple as, as, Lord, guide me in this next decision. Lord, who in this restaurant needs to be blessed today? Lord, who in this who on this, uh, in this airplane seat do I need to share the gospel with today? Again, not lengthy, but simple expressions and then pausing to listen. Uh, if you're worried about the clock, then, then you've missed the point. The point here is about our attitude. You see, Jesus encourages persistence in prayer. The early church modeled lengthy times of prayer. And so it's not about our brevity. It's about the heart of the person praying. Well, then that leads to a fourth question. How then should we pray? 
And for that, you have to come back next week because Jesus gives us that model prayer that we'll spend some time talking about as well. Interestingly enough, in Luke's gospel, when Luke shares the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is taught in Luke's gospel as a result of a question, as the disciples ask Jesus, how then do we pray? And then Jesus gives them the model prayer. Here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, may we be mindful of our heart's attitude when we pray. Would we be mindful of the meaning of our words when we bring them to you? Would we be mindful as we live our days of how we go about praying without ceasing, not in constant chatter, constant, a constant barrage of words, but as we pray to seek your guidance, to seek your hand, to seek your wisdom through the day. Lord, help us to remember that we are men and women who we don't have it all together. Our sin is ever before us. And as we grow in Christ, may we find that our desire for communion with you to be greater, not lesser. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.